Good morning, everybody. So good to see you. Today, I am uh, at our Pacala campus, and I'll be uh, sharing with them live. And so we are uh, doing this video for our Loring Mill campus in Bishopville and online. I'm so glad that you have joined us. We want to make this a year of hope because all of us need hope. Our community needs hope. We want to be a church of hope, and we want to carry the message of hope to this world. I've challenged you to memorize Romans 15, 13. And Romans 15, 13 goes like this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, would you say that verse with me? Let's say it out loud and proud. Let's go. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now today we're finishing this series called Hope Grows. Hope happens when God works. That's the theme of the Spirit. And so the first week we talked about God's work in Jesus Christ, how God justified us through the work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And when we put our faith in Jesus, in that work, we have tremendous peace and we can live in hope. Last week we talked about how God can even use suffering to bring hope into our lives. Suffering can help us grow perseverance and character. And then we can live knowing that God who has been at work is still at work. And today we're going to finish the series by talking about how hope grows in love. So let's dive into Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And I hope you'll take your Bibles and open there. And we're going to move through this passage phrase by phrase. The first phrase in verse 5 is this. And hope does not put us to shame. Hope is knowing what God has done for us and knowing that his work is going to continue. So what has God done for us? Well, he sent his son Jesus, his only son, to die on the cross for our sins. And then he raised his son Jesus to life so that we might enter into his kingdom, into a different way of living, into a different way of thinking and feeling, doing relationships, taking care of ourselves. Life in the kingdom is a life of hope. And so why would Paul talk about hope not bringing shame? Except that there must be a kind of hope that does bring shame. So first, let's define shame. What is shame? What's the difference between shame and guilt? Well, guilt is awareness that you have done wrong. Shame is feeling unworthy. Guilt is a healthy response to an awareness that you have failed. It leads us to make amends, to apologize, to seek forgiveness. But shame uh, can come from messages that are out there in our world that tell us we're not worthy of being loved. You can receive messages like that from parents when your parents may, might have told you that you're not smart enough or you're, you're not pretty enough, you can certainly get that message from teachers who say you're not trying or that message from your peers that you're not cool enough or the message from your boss that you're not working hard enough. 
The reason that shame is so wounding is it sends the message, you are not enough. And we have a deep longing to be attached, to know that we matter to someone. And when you're told you're not enough, it feels like you don't matter. God designed you to attach because you matter to God. Now, sin has really twisted up our souls, and we put our hope in other people, and we count on their approval for attachment and to make us feel like we're enough. Or we put our hope in some achievement or some feeling that we're going to come out on top, and then we will finally feel like we're enough. So there was this couple in counseling, and the wife was speaking to the counselor and saying, I just feel like my husband doesn't meet my needs. And the counselor asked, well, what needs does your husband not meet? And the wife began to name some things, and, and some of it was very legitimate, things that the husband could legitimately do. But the more she talked, the more she began to f say things like, my husband doesn't make me feel significant. My husband doesn't make me feel secure. And after she went on in this vein for a while, the counselor paused and gently said to her, ma'am, I think you need to remember your husband is not Jesus Christ. There is a deep wound in your soul that no human being can fill, only Jesus. So when there is a message from yourself or from others saying you are not enough, you can know that message is not from God. When you put your hope in Jesus, you can feel guilty about sin. And that's actually a gift. You're aware that, that you've done something wrong and you can take steps asking God for forgiveness, asking others for forgiveness. But you will not be shamed because God never says to you, you are not enough. Shame is what Satan and what all the forces of evil want you to feel. Because shame will keep you stuck. Shame will keep you from truly knowing God. It will keep you from living in grace. It will keep you from living out your purpose. So is there a shame message you need to delete? Is there a shame message you need to delete? Is, is there a message that runs in a voice in your head that you just need to, to wipe out? And that's hard to do. It's hard to delete these old messages. Maybe the first step for you is to pray a prayer, something like this, Heavenly Father, I feel unworthy of love, and I know that is not how you feel about me. Change my thinking and my feelings. So again, Heavenly Father, I feel unworthy of love, and I know that's not how you feel about me. So change my thinking and my feeling. I want to challenge you, if you have a shame message you need to delete, to pray a prayer like this, over the next two, three weeks, and see if that shame begins to diminish and go away. 
I have heard of people praying a prayer like this, and after 30 days, they say somehow God has worked in their soul, and the old shame message has lost its power. Now, sometimes shame is more deeply rooted, and you need a safe place to talk it out. I hope our life groups can be places of grace for you to talk out shame. And you can discover that people will love you just because they know you're made in the image of God. Some shame needs to be processed with a counselor. There is no shame in seeking out counseling. Instead, going to counseling is actually a next step toward health, toward growing your character to be just like Jesus. Now, how do we know putting our hope in God does not bring shame? The next phrase in the verse. So Paul says, hope does not bring us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Now, I love this picture. The love of God is poured out into our hearts. Um, This is a picture of what we call a gully washer. Have you ever seen a gully washer rain? It's a rain where the water comes down so hard, so fast, it just spreads over everything. And in fact, sometimes it cuts a whole new channel. It washes out a gully for the water to go down. Now, the reason I like that mental picture is because I think that's what God's love does. God's love is carving a new channel in your soul. It is away from the old channels of shame. God's love is coming to you, and it is carving a new channel which says, you are loved, you are valued, I care about you, you matter to me. Now, if you have come to church, you've probably heard a lot about the love of God. And it can sound stale. We can almost go past it. And we forget how amazing his love really is. The great love passage in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. It's often read at weddings. But remember, the Bible also says to us, God is love. What would happen if you took the the middle section of 1 Corinthians 13, and instead of the word love, you use the word God? Because God is is love. It would read like this, and these would be aspects of God's love, what it means for God's love to be with us. And the first thing we would learn is that God is patient. How patient he is with us. And all the times when we forget to follow Jesus, all the times we sin, all the times we are passive, how patient God is with us. And God is kind. He looks upon us with kindness, with understanding. He understands our pain. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our character flaws. He understands the broken parts of our soul. God does not envy. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? God doesn't envy? Well, of course God doesn't envy. He's God. But I want you to think about what this means. God does not want to take something away from you except your sin. 
God wants to take your sin, the destructive forces in your life away from you. He's not envying you and wanting to take something away from you so you can be miserable. Our God wants something for you, not something from you. God does not boast. God does not have to make himself big at your expense. You have been around people who say they love you, but they put you down, those subtle put-downs. That's not love, and that's not God. God is ultimately self-secure, so he doesn't have to perform and make us feel small. God is not about making you feel small and insignificant. God is not proud. God does not lift himself up. I want you to think about Jesus being born in a manger. Jesus humbling himself to have a human body. Jesus dying on a cross, stripped naked. The humility of Jesus, the humility of God. Submitting himself to this kind of treatment. Love is always humble, and God is humble. God does not dishonor others. God is not comparing you to other people. His love for you does not cause him to choose sides. And this is so important, I think, for Jesus' followers today because so often Jesus' followers today wrongly phrase their thinking as God is on my side, and that's incorrect. God is not on your side. The only side to be on is God's side. And so God is not about putting other people down so we can feel good about ourselves or he can feel good about himself. God's love spreads to everyone. So everyone you see is someone God loves. God is not self-seeking. God's love is selfless, which if you think about it, selfless is the definition of true love. He loves you not because of what you do, not because you're good enough, not because you perform. He loves you because he is love. So God is not seeking anything for himself in loving you except for you to allow him to love you and you to love him in return. God is not easily angered. Now, some of you grew up in families when dad came home, you were scared because dad had a temper and you never knew if he was going to come home and start exploding that temper around. That's why you may have hid when, when your dad came home. Well, listen, God's not like that. You may have grown up hearing sermons that really focused on how angry God is and it made you think God is angry all the time. He's not. Now, does God get angry? Well, of course he does. Anyone who loves gets angry. But God, God is slow to anger. I want you to just think about some of the stories in the Bible. Uh, he gave human beings 120 years when Noah was building the ark to see if they would change their ways. He gave the nation of Israel hundreds of years to see if finally they would turn away from false gods. And, and how much time has God given you? 
Yeah, God is not easily angered. He wants what's best for you. And God keeps no record of wrongs. Now what Paul means here when he says love keeps no record of wrongs is love lets go. Love forgives. Love does not bring up something from the past and say, okay, yes, yes, I, I, I know I'm, I've done wrong, but I'm going to bring up something you've done wrong in the past. Now think about God. God forgives you, and then he does not go back and say, I'm still angry about what you did back in college. I'm still angry about the way you treated your first wife. No, if you have asked forgiveness, God forgives And he doesn't keep a record except a record of grace that your sins have been covered over by his love, by the death of Jesus. God does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. You know, God doesn't take any pleasure in the twistedness of your soul. God doesn't take any pleasure in the twistedness of the world. God doesn't take any pleasure in in war or murder. God takes no pleasure in cancer or disease. God takes no pleasure in, in seeing someone abused or in prison. There's a great theological word. It's the word sanctification which means God is working to straighten out all the twistedness of your soul. Now, my own experience with the twistedness of my soul is it's taking God a lifetime to untwist. And I'm glad he's giving me eternity. So I finally get some time when I am with him to feel what it's like to have an untwisted soul. God always protects. If you love someone, you protect them, right? And God loves you, so he is going to protect you from the greatest threat to your soul, and that is sin. Jesus Christ dying for our sins, when we accept him, we then are protected from the consequences of sin, the eternal consequences of being separated from God. Now, this is not to say that you will not have trouble here on earth. You will have trouble here on earth. We are told in this world, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus said. You will be misunderstood. But if you are secure in God's love and you live in that love, what on earth can threaten you? Somebody who's mad at you? Somebody who misunderstands you? God always trusts And this is the hard part about understanding God's love. To truly love is to grant freedom. God loves everybody on this world so much that he does not mandate obedience. He gives you the opportunity to choose if you'll have a relationship with him. God is not going to control you with fear. He is not going to put shame on you that paralyzes you. God trusts you. And if you're not a believer, the trust he's putting in you is that one day you will discover and embrace his love. And if you are a believer, it is trusting that that you want to follow Jesus, not that you have to follow Jesus. And God always hopes. 
And there's our word, hope. God does not look at you with resignation. He is always hopeful that you will make the right choice, that today you'll follow Jesus. God always hopes in what is best for you, no matter what situation you find yourself in. And God always perseveres. God does not quit on you. God does not turn off his love. That love is poured out. God's love does not quit on you even when you quit on yourself. And God never fails. He never comes up short. His love is in the hospital room. It's in the courtroom. His love is in the jailhouse, in your house. His love is in the lawyer's office and in the doctor's office. His love is in your boss's office and in the funeral home. His love is, is when present when your fingers are flying over the keys of your computer. It is in the cockpit. It is in the Humvee. It is on the flight line. It is when you're on horseback and when the bull is chasing you. Love is there when you are in the driver's seat, when you're at home plate, in the Oval Office, on the job site, at Starbucks, sitting with a friend, when you're rocking your newborn, when you're crying with your teenager, when you're sitting with a friend at Starbucks. God's love is there when you are heartbroken broken because you haven't heard from your child. God's love is there when you're changing the diaper of your grandson. God's love never fails. There is this amazing song that every time I, I hear it, it just speaks to my heart. We've sung it here at Alice Drive, I think on every campus. And, and the first lines of the song goes like this, how deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Now you can have shame so strong that you believe this may be true for everybody else but you. But why would God make you the exception? What if everything God just said is real? Wouldn't it make sense for you to give your whole life to someone who loves you so much? And to admit that you actually need forgiveness and to ask for forgiveness and ask Jesus to enter your life and take charge and commit to follow him. Doesn't that seem like the most logical thing to do in the light of God's amazing love? Now, Paul is not done. He goes on and he says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now the Greek grammar that Paul uses here implies continual action. In other words, God's love is not poured out just one time. God's love is poured out continually. Now if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is God now dwelling in you. So all of who God is, all of God's knowledge, all of God's power now dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is a conduit that's able to communicate you, to you, guide you, encourage you, and make you aware of God's love. 
make you aware of how God's love is being poured out. Are you aware of the Holy Spirit in your life? I know that sounds a little weird, but just think with me. What happens when you get a new thought that is positive and that leads you to a better relationship or a a better life? Where did that thought come from? Or, Or what happens when you read a Bible verse that you've read maybe a dozen times before and all of a sudden that verse leaps off the page and and you get it. It's like, oh, this is for me right now. Why did you happen to read that verse on the day you needed it? When you feel an impulse to help someone or to serve, where did that impulse come from? See, to me, this is, this is part of where Darwinism breaks down. If it's survival of the fittest, why would I be interested in helping you? But when I am unselfish, could it be that comes from the Holy Spirit? When I resist the temptation to lash out in anger, to prove that I am right. But instead, I respond with kindness. What's changed my response? Could it be the Holy Spirit? When I'm going through something and it's tough and I feel the weight and I feel the burden, but I find the strength to go one more step, could that be the Holy Spirit? When there's an old wound that one day I become aware of doesn't hurt like it used to hurt. Could that be the Holy Spirit actually healing my soul? When I make a mistake, and yet still good happens, could that that be the Holy Spirit working even in my sin and in my error? I think all of these things are evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives more than we know. And this is why God gave us the Holy Spirit so that he could inhabit our hearts and that deep attachment need we have could be met. God is always with us. So a good prayer to pray goes like this. Heavenly Father, make me aware of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Heavenly Father, make me aware of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. And this is why ultimately we have hope. And this is how to grow hope. To know the deep, deep love of our Heavenly Father and to let the Holy Spirit grow our awareness of that hope. Now now you may have heard this message and you'll be saying, okay, I get it. There's love and there's hope. You know, if you're not a believer, I want to encourage you today to accept Jesus as your Savior, to confess your sins, and then to say, you know, God, I I want to give you my life, and I want Jesus to come into my life, and I'm going to follow him. And, And you may not be sure about all the words. It's not a formula. It's a prayer that starts a relationship. You may know a lot about God, and you may have heard about God's love, but until you embrace God's love, that, that's what counts. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to be aware 
every day, every moment of God's love, I want you to be aware of the Holy Spirit in you and let that fill you with hope. And, and I think this is a good prayer for everyone. It's a prayer that says, Heavenly Father, I want to receive all the love you have for me so I can live in hope. I want to receive all the love you have for me so I can live in hope. In fact, I want to close this sermon by inviting you to do a spiritual exercise. And if you're not comfortable doing this, it's okay, but I hope you will because I think it'll help. And if you're watching uh, online, you can do this too or watching it at, at the other campuses. But would you just hold your hands out like this, both hands, both palms, both palms, just like this, just like this. And would you just pray this prayer, Heavenly Father, I want to receive all the love you have so I can live in hope. So let's pray. Just close your eyes, hold your hands like this. Heavenly Father, I want to receive all the love you have so I can live in hope. And Father, my prayer now is for everyone who hears this message, this word from you, that you would fill our lives with your hope and with your grace and with your love and with your peace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.